Hello there, and welcome to Preprints in Motion, a podcast taking a deep dive in the fast-paced world of preprints. Join us as we sit down with early career researchers, discuss their latest preprint, and find out about their journey through the muddy marshes of academia. Hit that subscribe button, leave a rating, and find us on Twitter at MotionPod. Support us by heading over to buymeacoffee.com slash preprints. But for now, let's get into the show. There's a rough outline of questions, but okay. I think Emma was a bit scant because, like, macrophage metabolism and heterogeneity, that's, that's <laughs> my wheelhouse. So this is All right. finally an episode for me. Oh, sweet. Um, <laughs> I assume other people listening will also enjoy it, but I'll enjoy it. I will definitely Hopefully. enjoy it. So, so let's, let's start with who are you? Where are you? <laughs> what do you do? Uh, well, I don't know. Uh, well, academically, I guess I'm a postdoc uh, currently in uh, Leiden in the Netherlands. Uh, at the University Medical Center there. Um, but yeah, that's only been the past two years. I mean, I was born and raised in Vancouver, which is where I did my bachelor's and started my PhD. And then through just, uh, I guess, random chance, ended up in Glasgow. My uh, supervisor uh, ended up taking a position there uh, halfway through my PhD. Uh, but yeah, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to uh, join her over there. And then, uh, yeah, uh, ended up here after finishing uh, the PhD there. There is a slight Scottish twang to the accent. Yeah, I think it's gone away since I've been in the Netherlands. <laughs> it definitely comes back when I talk to people from the UK, but uh, uh, for sure when I started here, uh, the whole department was confused. They were told a Canadian was coming. And then, uh, yeah, after hearing me, just assumed I was a Scottish or some form of British. Yeah. So living in Scotland for any duration of time, you're going to drink a lot of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Best whiskey. What should everyone listening go out and oh, buy? No, uh, whatever, whatever you like. I don't know. It's, uh, uh, I don't have a refined palate. I, I like them all. Uh, I have a few favorites. I like the smoky, it's the Isla whiskeys, of course. Oh, Who doesn't? Yeah. I think I think any real whiskey lover uh, tends to uh, lean that direction. But yeah, I just yeah, I have kind of a, an arsenal that I usually go for. The uh, the Oban fourteen, which is not a smoky one, is one that I really enjoy. Yeah, if I have if I have some spare cash, then I uh, shell out for the Lagavulin 16, which is uh, I think uh, almost mainstream now after uh, Parks and Recreation <laughs> made it famous. But uh, I'm drinking a whiskey salad tonight as it happens, so it's very appropriate. Uh, actually, I've uh, yeah, I brought my whiskey love to Leiden. I think uh, we've got a good group of uh, people here that uh, we're very keen to uh, to try and and uh, learn to love whiskey. But uh, we actually started making old fashions, which oh, yeah. uh, I have to say is just. Yeah, if you have to mix whiskey into a cocktail, it's the best one because it's, it's a good uh, way to go. Pretty much just straight whiskey, but with a <laughs> with a bit of flavor. Okay, so we're a science podcast, so we should talk about <laughs> science a little bit. Um, smoky, though, I'm all about the smoky. A good Talisker if you want something relatively cheap. Yeah. But anyway, science. Um, so macrophage heterogeneity, all about that. I love that. Right. My entire four year PhD was on macrophage heterogeneity. Oh, well, you know more than me then. <laughs> Ah, uh, well, it was in fruit flies, so almost certainly not, unless you want to talk about flies. So could you could you give us a little summary of what this preprint is all about, what you did? Uh, yeah, uh, honestly, just uh, we kind of copied what other people had done, but just applied <laughs> the technique to something a little different. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess one of my... Uh... 
uh, well, yeah, I've been, my whole PhD was focused on immunometabolism and uh, on T cells mostly. Uh, so I've been in the field for a while. And I think one thing that always kind of lacking, in my opinion, was a, a real drive to understand just what is happening metabolically in immune cells uh, in their normal state. And then, and then, of course, uh, my interest is infection. So how that changes during infection. Uh, and I think people so quickly just jumped to transgenic models uh, using in vitro systems, knocking stuff out, using inhibitors, but not actually trying to understand, you know, before you do any of that, you know, what does the metabolism actually look like? And I think now we're trying, we're actually now getting to that point uh, as uh, technology uh, gets better at addressing these questions. Uh, so, what, uh, so there are about three papers that all came out uh, roughly uh, at the same time that uh, were the first to show that or, or apply flow cytometry or mass cytometry to uh, look at metabolic targets, enzymes and transporters instead of uh, immune markers, which is what uh, you would normally do. So it's a pretty <laughs> straightforward thing. And I think the only reason that it hasn't really been done so much before is because uh, the companies that make these antibodies, you know, haven't been interested in, in metabolism. Yeah, so, but yeah, with uh, following on that, we found ways to incorporate this into, into flow. Others, yeah, as I said, others did it first. And the other papers focused really on uh, human PBMCs stimulating in vitro, this kind of thing. A really elegant paper looking at using the same technology, but to look at how CAR T cells respond uh, in in vivo in mice. But yeah, we just decided, well, why don't we just apply this to tissue macrophages? Because, you know, they're an incredibly diverse uh, population of cells. Yeah, the way they behave and act is different in every tissue. And there's a real, uh, I think, uh, yeah, interest uh, amongst uh, immunologists uh, in understanding this uh, in more depth. Mm, Yeah, I mean, the metabolism field, it's it's it was nothing for years and then suddenly kind of Luke O'Neill I think probably led the charge a bit but it's just suddenly mm. loads of metabolism stuff especially in macro. yeah it's uh yeah to be honest for a while I thought it was a fad that would eventually die off but yeah. uh, it's it's still going strong very strong yeah. uh and I mean, ultimately, once you, I think once you, you realize that metabolism is really just uh, what drives everything in a cell, yeah. it's uh, hard to get away from. How, so just purely selfish question here, but how well do those antibodies work for flow? I mean, presumably well, because, you know, we've done it. But Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, they seem to work very well in our hands. Um, I mean, we're putting a certain amount of faith in the manufacturers or the suppliers, because uh, at least one of the companies that we order through... Uh, several of the antibodies are knockout validated uh, in their hands so yeah we have some faith that uh, <laughs> that they work as they should but I mean just if you're just talking about pure signal we get great uh, great signal uh, yeah and of course we all, we see changes depending on how we stimulate the cells or where the cells come from uh, yeah they say they seem to work very well good because I I, I, um, some, I mean I'm in a neutrophil project at the moment but we've got some interesting metabolism data that we could do with verifying other than qPCR and we can't do seahorse so but yeah um anyway my <laughs> selfishness aside yeah don't, no not selfish at all i mean uh, i think uh, it's something that uh, if anyone wants to try this uh will want to know so so could you give us a little bit of an overview of what mass cytometry is and what spectral flow cytometry is because i think everyone most people at least will probably be familiar with standard flow cytometry but these are two relatively new I think. Technically. Yeah, well, mass cytometry has uh, been around for I think a while now, but uh, but uh, instead of using uh, lasers and uh, excitation and emission of the of the of the light uh, or the 
spectrum, uh, you just conjugate a heavy metal, and then it's a, it goes through a mass spec, basically. And then uh, if the that metal is uh, present on the cell, then uh, yeah, you get a signal. <laughs> I mean, it basically lets you do loads of targets, right, at once. It's more than you could do with standard flow. Yeah, I think it, ultimately, from what I can tell, because there's a lot of mass cytometry done in the uh, yeah, Saitoff, uh, done in our department. And it still does seem to be uh, the best in terms of maximizing the number of markers you can look at once, uh, and also in terms of the resolution. I mean, anyone who uh, does flow cytometry will understand the pains of compensation, especially as panels uh, (laughs) get bigger. It's it's pain in my life. uh, And that's really, uh, from what I understand, less of (laughs) an issue with uh, Saitoff. I spend most of my time doing uh, flow panels, and it's it's mainly just compensating. Yeah, exactly. realizing the panel doesn't work so you yeah, start yeah, yeah yeah i hate it yeah i have to say so spectral flow cytometry which we're doing now is uh, a bit of a godsend in a way i mean it certainly has its kinks uh, or, or it's a, like it's fair bit of troubleshooting but uh, the way it works is instead of looking at just one peak emission uh, it takes the entire spectrum of that particular uh, cell or target and so based on that it uh, yeah it's called spectral unmixing so you record the single stains it knows what that spectra looks like and then in a mixed sample you have all these various spectra somehow the machine magically knows uh, where it comes from and then uh, yeah as long as you design your panel well you don't have to compensate at all you can make minor adjustments if you need to but uh, it honestly just the biggest thing is it saves so much time on the cytometer yep. because you just go and you run your samples and then uh, there's not much you can do uh, compensation wise. Yeah, that's my terrible explanation of uh, cytop and spectral flow cytop. <laughs> we uh, we we've we've got one in the department, but I just haven't been trained on it yet. We had one where I last worked and I hadn't been trained on that either. It's it's on my list to do, but I just can't find a good enough reason to do it at the moment. Yeah, just save yourself time. <laughs> I know. So. Maybe we should talk a little bit about macrophage heterogeneity because I assume most of our listeners are not immunologists. So, I mean, you've looked at macrophages in different tissues. So could you explain why that's important to do? Yeah, in general, uh, I think immunology, you know, has to start to looking in tissues because that's where all the immunology really happens. And uh, macrophages are really key in in any immunological process, I think. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I have to say that uh, my bit of a disclaimer here is like uh, my entire PhD was on T cells. So the macrophage side <laughs> thing still feels relatively fresh despite uh, working yeah. on it for uh, two years. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of disease phenotypes with macrophages. Uh, you know, they really are a key orchestrators of several physiological processes from tissue organization to, um, you know, neurotransmission to you name it. And of course, uh, uh, every macrophage in every tissue is going to be specialized for whatever function it, it needs to do. So yeah, understanding this heterogeneity, of course, uh, just, yeah, I guess helps you get a better picture of, uh, of where macrophages need to function and how. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, the, that's why macrophages are just the best cell. And there's, there's no argument against that <laughs> yeah. because they do, you know, like the macrophages you have in your heart versus the ones you have in your lungs are very, very different cells, despite being called macrophages. And they're involved in everything, everything you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Macrophages yeah. seem to be having a role in it. So they're the coolest cells ever to work on. It's interesting that you did T-cells to macrophages, because I went the other way and did macrophages to T-cells, right. <laughs> to now neutrophils and T-cells. So yeah, and I yeah, it's I know macrophages, not so much on the T-cells. And I skipped, t- I went CD8s and then CD4s. So I've yet to build up any kind of working knowledge of 
T-cells. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it's like your first love, right? Uh, I don't mm. know. T-cells are always, uh, I think, number one. Macrophages, uh, of course, uh, they're getting up there. Uh, but yeah, I think it's probably proportionate to just how much time you spend on it. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's maybe working its way to a tie. I spent a lot of nights sat alone with, with macrophages. So, you know, it's a bonding experience, if nothing else. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, my biggest problem with tissue macrophages. It's just they're such a pain in the ass sometimes. <laughs> I miss uh, taking out a lymph node or a spleen and just uh, mashing it and then you're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Try working on neutrophils. They are so much worse. I can imagine. They're awful. Horrible cells to work with. I mean, they're great if anyone I work with listens, but they're awful. Um, they just don't do anything. Well, they, don't, they do a lot of things. They don't do anything you want them to do. And they're a pain to work with technically as well. Um, so, macrophages metabolism was one of those things, I, I kind of mentioned Luke O'Neill, he's, I think if anyone knows anything about macrophage metabolism, his name's probably involved in that. He gives a really good talk, if you can he keep does. up with his incredible talking speed. <laughs> um, he needs to be, like, on half speed. If you can record him and watch about half speed, that, then it'll be a good talk. Um, also, a really nice man, actually, as it happens. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've not met him personally, but... Uh... <laughs> I get that I vibe. I've had a drink uh, with him. I've yeah. had a drink with him once. He's in a band. I mean, so you know he's cool. I, I, I've seen him play at uh, one of my conferences. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is he good? I've never seen him play. Is he good? Yeah. He doesn't yeah. listen. I'm I mean, almost certain he doesn't listen, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a long time ago, but uh, I remember, yeah, the energy was flowing for sure. <laughs> so, could you explain how metabolism works in macrophages? Because it's different between. A macrophage that is active versus not active. It's also different between the subsets of so M1, M2 macrophages. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> the whole M1, M2 paradigm is, uh, I think, something that the field is very actively trying to abandon. That's another just, question. Uh, That's my next question. Yeah. But uh, yeah, my current supervisor, uh, Bart Everts, was, uh, I guess, uh, involved in some of the seminal work on that. But uh, I mean, the initial findings, I guess... Uh, which I think actually date back well before uh, the field became what it is today, was that, uh, yeah, if you just, if you stimulate macrophages, uh, you know, traditionally in a dish with uh, LPS or anything that's like uh, pro-inflammatory uh, or will induce uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine uh, production, really strongly associated with this increase in glycolysis. So they just uh, take up loads of glucose, yeah, and uh, secrete loads of uh, lactate. Yeah, and then on the other side, which I think was uh, figured out to more recently, well, relatively speaking, is uh, that, uh, yeah, if you polarize macrophages towards what we'd say more of a wound healing or regulatory phenotype, uh, something that would, uh, in theory, dampen down the immune system rather than uh, promote... Uh, yeah, inflammation uh, and more is involved in resolution. Really, instead, uh, switch towards uh, other pathways. So they use more lipids uh, and more amino acids. Uh, so particularly glutamine. That that was those were the initial in vitro findings. M one, M two. I think it's uh, as we get more into the mechanisms of this. Of course, it's uh, we're learning that uh, it's much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the uh, M two papers, I mean they clearly use loads of glycolysis as well, <laughs> or loads yeah. of glucose. So why why would a macrophage that's been activated want to switch its metabolism? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> you know, at least from my work uh, with T cells, you know, the one of the hypotheses I always liked was that uh, it's a combination of just competition between pathogens uh, as well as just uh, an uh, adaptation to uh, kind of global metabolic changes. You know, like you get sick, uh, you end up with uh, hyperglycemia, and then that gives you fuel to uh, 
<laughs> to act as a T cell. So yeah, I don't know if it's if it's the same thing with macrophages. I mean, if you get to, you know some sort of inflammation, you get trigger, and then there's more uh, metabolites coming in. Whether it's uh, you know a consequence of you know other uh, metabolic pathways. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the initial metabolic changes described in macrophages is, of course, you know this uh, oxidative burst. <laughs> you know, it's a very metabolically demanding process, which is directly mm-hmm. involved in in killing whatever uh, the macrophage takes up. So yeah, I don't know. There's probably a mix of answers there in terms of you know mechanistically you know facilitating what it needs to do uh, in terms to in, in order to kill pathogens or or on the other sides maybe to uh, to resolve inflammation as well as uh, just you know on a, a on a bigger scale. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's that's why I ask because I so I I looked yeah. at macrophages in fruit flies and what, towards the end of that the PhD I became quite interested in metabolism and we tested some stuff out and it looks like actually activating macrophages in the fruit fly yeah. also go a bit glycolytic. So it's kind of, it's one of those things that I think has been shown in fish now. So it does actually kind of stick throughout evolution. So it's obviously a very conserved yeah. and important fundamental mechanism. The other thing I found, so I was, my last postdoc was working on T-cell, CD8 T-cells and hypoxia. And now one of the things we we're trying to do is to sort of separate out hypoxia and metabolism. And yeah, it's really, quite uh... really difficult to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, like what comes first? Because it, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's I, I always was I just couldn't quite figure out why they do it. I think it probably is, as you said, it's probably multiple reasons why they need to do it. Yeah, I mean, my interest has always been kind of yeah on the other side, right? Like the alternative activation, type two immunity regulation. Uh, you know, because mm. my background is more understanding the immune responses to uh, parasitic helminth infection. And there's some really cool hypotheses about just uh, you know how uh, your body metabolism changes in response to that, and whether you know. So, yeah, there are some papers that have kind of addressed this in a way, like whether that, that affects your immune uh, compartment. And uh, just also, yeah, I also like this idea of metabolic competition between the parasites. You know, there's a, a cool paper uh, from, uh, I think it was like, two, yeah, early 2000s or late 2000s or something, where, you know, the looking at the, the helminth metabolism, and it's really dependent on uh, fatty acid oxidation and libits as our... Uh, you know, supposedly alternatively activated macrophages, you know, and uh, some of the top secreted molecules by like the model helmet that uh, we often work with, Helogmosomoides polygyrus, are these uh, molecules that uh, act as um, uh, lipid sinks, you know, they just, uh, the proteins go and they have lipid binding pockets, they're just uh, lipid scavengers. So yeah, I don't know, it's a, yeah, it's a hard uh, question to tackle, but it's fun to think about. (laughs) Well, the thing I think one of the things that surprised me the most was that a lot of the metabolites from switching their metabolism actually have immune function themselves. So like, I mean, the big one would be idaconate from, that's what Luke kind of focuses on. But it, it's just really surprising to see these different roles for things that for such a long time we thought were very, yeah. we thought we'd, we'd understood something. Yeah, uh, no, I've seen no, that a lot with uh, lactate now, right? It's a, mm. it's a waste product. Yeah, no, it's not. It actually signals. It's, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I have to catch up on my reading on this, but <laughs> on all these things. But but yeah, it is. I agree with you. It's a, uh, and honestly, I think that's one of the reasons that metabolism is such a big field. Is you know, you you pick your metabolite, you pick your yeah. your molecule, your stimulus, or your protein of interest. It's almost guaranteed to have some sort of metabolic interaction or consequence or something. How how do they differ in metabolism from T cells? 
Oh, well, they're just, they're way more metabolic in general. So, I mean, it makes sense in a way they're much bigger cells. I think uh, they're generally much more active in the tissues. Yeah, in terms of, you know, different pathways. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, my, my understanding was they were act, generally activated T cells are slightly more glycolytic anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, you see, you know, similar changes in activated T cells as you do when you stimulate macrophages. Uh, but yeah, I think it's always hard to, to, to know yeah, whether something is going up specifically or whether it's just, uh, you know, you know, everything just becomes a bit more metabolic mm. because of uh, just, yeah, as the cell becomes bigger and more demanding. Well, it's a question of what, what comes first, right? Is, is it metabolism yeah, driving yeah, these changes or is it these changes then requiring more metabolism? Yeah, it's uh, for sure a bit of a chicken and egg. But uh, I mean, you also there are say, uh, parallels, I think, in in within larger immune responses, right? So in a viral infection or something, or uh, you know, I, in my PhD, I was comparing toxo infection, which is a very strong pro-inflammatory response, with uh, Helminth infection, which induces these you know type two regulatory responses. And yeah, you see you see similar trends. You know, like cells involved in the the type two uh, immune side of things will generally seem to really have a preference for lipids or, or uh, at least yeah metabolically they seem to take up and metabolize lipids uh, more whereas yeah you see this really uh, strong increase in, in the gl- like glucose yeah. metabolism uh, on the other side so there's definitely I think parallels depending on on the uh, yeah the type of immune response you want hmm. and then so, so you mentioned the m1 m2 spectrum it's not m1 m2 <laughs> m1 m2 is really handy but it's it really is a spectrum it's it's not nearly as I wish it was that simple yeah so in terms of presumably the metabolism is also on a spectrum it's not one it's not all glycolysis or all TCA it's probably on a spectrum well how well does that spectrum map towards sort of pro or anti-inflammatory functions is it quite clear it's like a de- is there a definitive switch I guess is what I'm asking I, yeah yeah well in vitro uh, I would say yeah you can pretty clearly uh, <laughs> you know define the uh, metabolism based on the stimulus or vice versa yeah, yeah, it's really hard to say, to be honest. I mean, you know, papers, uh, I mean, it's such a complicated field, you know, you tend to hone in on yeah. one pathway at a time <laughs> uh, and see see whether it's playing a role or not. But yeah, it's really hard. I mean, yeah, I think uh, these things are going to be hard to find. I mean, we're here to ask the hard questions. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to say one thing that I think is cool about the, 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 the field at the moment is there has been so much groundwork laid. So people have done these things where, you know, you stimulate and you look at how metabolism changes. Uh, and what's cool now, and this is kind of how what led my PhD, is now you can take a metabolic signature, uh, roughly, and say, well, this is this fits with what has been shown before and uh, almost hypothesize that it's some sort of imprint based on that signal. And then, of course, you can test that you know, hypothesis and, and see. And so, yeah, I think that is what's cool about metabolism now and what we will be con- hopefully be able to continue to do, where if you, instead of trying looking at what changes metabolism, look at the metabolism and use that as a, to try and infer now what is happening to the cell. That's, that's actually what I've tried to do recently in my current project yeah i mean it, it depends i mean as you get more complex it may or may not work but i mean in my phd we just kind of saw like uh you know we have this signature of you know a switch towards lipid metabolism and you know luckily a lot of immunometabolism has been done mostly with t-cells um so you know based off of you know papers at the time we made the hypothesis and uh, and yeah it ended up uh, i think in a very cool uh, finding which uh, 
will hopefully be published sometime. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, not yet. But yeah, so that's my take. <laughs> so how does the metabolism differ across tissues? Because the general consensus is that within a tissue, a macrophage is sort of the, the M2 air quotes on a podcast. They, they work great. Um, they're sort of the, the anti-inflammatory prohealing type phenotype going on in tissues. So how... Do you see differences across tissues in terms of the macrophage metabolism? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, I think, figure two of our preprint. Uh, <laughs> yeah, quite clear differences, actually. But, I mean, it's not just across tissues, even within tissues. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't think we're necessarily the first to really uh, think that this is the case. <laughs> but I think our paper does kind of show, uh, show this really nicely because I... I can't think of any papers I know of, uh, so sorry to, if, uh, if there is one out there, but uh, that have really done this kind of uh, tissue-wide comparison outside of, uh, say, uh, you know, single-cell RNA sequencing. And yeah, I, I'm not an expert in single-cell, but, you know, from talking to people who do it and from limited uh, experience, it's really hard to detect uh, metabolic uh, enzymes and transporters because their transcripts are usually much lower and you only pick up the top uh, 500 or a few thousand or whatever, depending on. <laughs> what your budget yeah. is but yeah so i think that's where this uh, the metabolic uh, flow cytometry your spectral flow cytometry or cytoff whichever you're doing works really nicely because it's a uh, yeah you get single nice single cell uh, data at the protein level of course too so like it's actually probably level, happening yeah. rather than just transcripts which may or may not be doing anything yeah i mean of course you run into other caveats you know you know you, you can't say anything about the activity no. of that enzyme <laughs> or that transporter but uh, you know we're working on trying to expand this panel or look at uh, make uh, kind of pathway specific mm -hmm. panels and uh, hope that you know if, if you see that you know all enzymes are up in a pathway you can make a pretty good guess that that's important and then yeah of course there are other ways we can work on validating this uh, as well uh, but yeah to just answer your question generally i would say that uh, the, the metabolic uh, properties of macrophages vary dramatically uh, across tissues so have you is this submitted now then yeah, so, uh, yeah, we didn't uh, get it through in our first choice, but that was also, uh, we knew it was a long <laughs> shot, and it actually, uh, yeah, we yeah we ended up with more hope than uh, we should have. But no, we've, yeah, it's in review now, and we also have, well, we were invited to uh, submit it straight to peer review in another journal okay. that uh, we will go to next, depending on the outcome. Yeah, of, uh, well, it's good to have <laughs> options. <laughs> yeah. So did you preprint at the point of submitting to the journal, or did you preprint before that? Uh, pretty much parallel to submission. So I think uh, I put it on BioArchive uh, a few days before, and then, uh, yeah, my super, uh, my PI ended up uh, doing the actual submission to the journal, and he did that a few days uh, later. It's probably good. That's painful. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of discussions about uh, preprints. I don't know if that's your next one of your questions. Well, it's probably but, one of my uh, questions. It's... Well, the question we ask everyone is, whose decision was it to preprint? Was it yours? Was it the PIs? Or was it a collective thing? Uh, collective. Uh, I mean, I think I was the first to say, oh, I think it would be great if we could just like put this out as a preprint. Uh, and he uh, was uh, just fully behind that. Uh, uh, I mean, I think there are other people in our department who have also already put up preprints, so it wasn't new to, uh, well, at least to, to my PI. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's great to get that sense of just getting it yeah. out there, right? Because you never know how long the review process is going to take, and long. you know, I've had colleagues who just get so sick of their papers by the end of it, <laughs> which is such a shame because uh, they put so much work into it. I feel like at least with a preprint, you almost get that instant gratification, even if it hasn't gone through peer review. It's uh, 
you know, it's out there for people to see, and uh, it feels like an accomplishment, even if uh, it hasn't gone through the whole uh, rigor remote. I've, rigor I've always been <laughs> more excited at the preprint stage than I have at the actual publication stage, because I think it, it is, it's that, it's done, it's ready, here it is, and we can be all happy and excited about it. And then the whole peer review thing is, oh, well, we've got to satisfy these people who may or may not have good opinions. And then, oh, yeah, it's out, but, you know, it was already out. So uh, why did you decide to preprint and not just straight up submit to a journal? Is there any specific reasoning behind that? Uh, some of it was for CV. Yeah, there were some uh, grants that I was maybe uh, going to apply for, which I didn't in the end because, uh, yeah, it just didn't seem <laughs> like it was wise based off of uh, <laughs> where things were. But yeah, so some of it was CV building. Some of it's what I said. It's just, uh, you know, it's just cool to have it out there. You know, there's always a fear of kind of being scooped. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at least if you could put it on viral archive, you know, you can, uh, yeah, I don't know if that would stimulate your competition to hurry up or... <laughs> Well, I mean, if it's if it's on a preprint server, it's out. So it doesn't matter if they hurry up. But uh, yeah, I mean, my hope would be if there's uh, people working on similar stuff that uh, you know they get in touch and then we work on it. We did uh, that. We did that on my last together. Yeah. So. so my last paper, we preprinted it. A day later, a group in the US preprinted a similar paper, and we ended up working together and co-submitting. And they pay, they paid our APC fee as well for the journal. Oh, very, there you very go. That's a, that's an ideal ideal um, situation. Because we were yeah. we were it was led by me, so we. Postdoc don't got no money for publishing. So we the plan was actually not to publish. It was just to leave it as a preprint. So we were only able to publish because of that. So it was nice. Oh, that. Nice. Yeah, see, see there are good stories in There the, are. There's lots academia. of good stories. <laughs> at least we get all the good stories. We've not had a bad story yet. Maybe we should hunt someone down who has a bad story to balance. Do it. PBC. <laughs> so you you also moved your lab, as you said at the start. So you, you, you were in Canada. Then you ended up yeah. in Scotland. So mm-hmm. how was that? Because it's... I mean, it's stressful at any point during a PhD, I think, but moving labs is particularly stressful. Yeah, I mean, I was more excited than anything. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, uh, academia aside, you know, I had uh, grown up uh, in Vancouver all my life and by no means a bad place to live, but uh, I did have a sense of like, I really needed to get out and experience something else. Uh, and this, uh, yeah, happened, uh, yeah, serendipitously. But yeah, I mean, a lot of time was lost, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um I mean, trying to get things set up, you know, figuring out all the new, uh, you know, admin and all of this, uh, getting a, getting a new animal license. Yeah, <laughs> getting used to the UK very, very strict animal laws. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> come to the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I keep uh, going from stricter to stricter places. <laughs> yeah, Canada is... Uh, yeah, I mean they. St- I mean they still were. I think okay ethically, but mm. uh, they made it just significantly easier yeah. in order to uh, get things done. And uh, yeah, the UK was yeah a bit more strict, I guess, in a way. But uh, yeah, ultimately you could still uh, move forward pretty quick. The Netherlands is uh, yeah yeah you have to like predefine your entire research before you can even s- touch an animal. And then if your project doesn't go the way that you planned, you can't. Uh, you have to go through a whole new application process to be able to to address uh, the new hypothesis. How's, so. how's, how does that differ from the UK? So the UK license, you've got to do that as well. You're not really allowed to differ. You've got to, you can request like changes to it. We've got kind of set, well, got I don't know. Yeah, I never had to write one, but my understand or yeah, my experience was that you can write your license quite broadly. Yeah, you can. And uh, as long as as long as the procedure is uh, on the license, then the actual kind of outcome or question that you're trying to address doesn't really need yeah. 
uh, affected at all. But here, it's you have to kind of define your animal numbers for a particular experiment. So you have to, you have these like uh, no or no go moments. Mm. Where you know you have to say if this is uh, we're going to do this experiment and if this is the result then we can do this experiment if not then we stop the and uh, that's it but you know it doesn't really leave any room for like we did this experiment it didn't work but we found this interesting yeah. finding that we want to follow up on and then you know if you want to do a different model or a treatment or you want a new strain of mouse something it's like okay back to the application process <laughs> <laughs> yeah just painful. I didn't. I didn't yeah. realize it was that. Yeah, it's a weird way to do, it, actually. Yeah. Not, yeah. So, anyways, works. I forget what. Oh yeah, moving labs. <laughs> moving labs. That was the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's a. It was a good experience. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think I lost probably a year of like real productivity, mm. but I mean, the advantages far outweighed you know anything that hindered me uh, in that time. Sunny Scotland. I mean, what was <laughs> uh, Yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah, Scotland gets a lot of flack, but I love Scotland. <laughs> Scotland, uh, Scotland is a beautiful, it's such beautiful an amazing country. place. Yeah, and Glasgow as well. I mean, also it still seems to have a bit of a reputation, but uh, it was such an amazing city to live in. <laughs> There's definitely parts that are really, really nice. I've not, I've, it's been a long time since I was in Glasgow, but like the whole, just the whole of Scotland is an amazing country. Everyone should go to Scotland, and the Scottish tourist board should maybe give us some money for saying that. Um, so we asked kind of what people are excited about and stuff and your answer was new technology so do you have a favorite new technology uh honestly no (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah i mean i say that but my bread and butter is like standard uh, flow cytometry uh but you know i'm starting to get into this you know we submitted our first samples for single cell rna seq so that'll be a fun challenge Mm. to uh, wrap my head around but you know i was just recently at a conference and looking at all the things people are doing uh you know you can now do kind of you know all this in vivo tracing what is it uh, like metabolic imaging yeah. and just yeah it's insane what we can now do of course there's going to be financial barriers to most labs uh, or just you know where these machines are available and uh, you know there's someone uh, associated with our group who's you know kind of trying to do some of these technologies and it takes years just to to optimize and get it to work so i look forward to you know when people like me uh, can just uh, click a button and uh, make these <laughs> things happen but uh, I mean, the metabolism field is probably a good field to be into for, well, and immune sort of cells, because those are two fields that I think are rapidly advancing in terms of technologies, or at least application of technologies. Yeah. So it's probably, you've probably chosen the right place, or at least the right field. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I, I, well, I like it, so I'm, I'm here to stay. Well, that, that's what matters. It's the important part. So, th- I mean, that leads quite nicely to our other question, which is the other thing we ask sort of everyone is, is what do you think could be improved in academia and i think you might be the first person to give the answer you give actually now so you said you had a a really good experience in academia so maybe we should talk about that because we often what we do with this question is we talk about what's wrong with academia and of course i mean i talk about what's wrong with academia all the time because it's one of the things i research but academia is really good there's a lot of really good things so this might be a really good opportunity for you to sell academia (laughs) All yeah, on I mean, I don't want to come across as disillusioned. Like, I know there's uh, several several issues. You know, I experienced some of them myself. But I just, yeah, I so I read that question and just felt like, ah, oh, this seems unfair. Because, uh, yeah, it's, I it's mean, definitely leading. It's a very leading question. Yeah, but I mean, the one thing that you know, this 
topic comes up semi-frequently and the one thing i i tell everyone because at least this is my stance is it really feels like a privilege to be in academia i mean from my sides i just you know i i didn't really want know what i wanted to do growing up or whatever i stumbled into to academia and uh you know at the end of the day it just you get to play around you get to just figure try you're trying to figure out how things work and it just feels uh you know like a hobby sometimes and you know i very much appreciate getting paid for my hobby okay. and i hope that uh, no one will hear this and say well you're willing to work for free but, i mean uh... we, we, we basically <laughs> work for free a lot of the time anyway don't worry don't worry we've we've got the the negatives covered <laughs> but yeah i mean yeah i don't know it just uh i think people maybe yeah don't think about that or forget that or maybe they just don't feel the same way but you know it it's, it's just such a unique profession i think to uh and uh, yeah you have to i guess you have to love it to stay the course uh yeah i think that's definitely true um and i think i think people that i often see disheartened or or you know kind of yeah decide academia is not for them is they just uh they don't really it's not that they don't like what they do of course but they just don't have that kind of same feeling of like uh, i'm getting paid to do a hobby trying to think. see i'm one of those disillusioned people i'm trying to think now <laughs> yeah i so it's, it's i'm in the process of trying to leave academia so it's quite a just the feelings with that because i don't want to leave like i I, yeah. I i was one of the people who knew what i wanted to do for like forever change a little bit but once i knew it, it stick for quite a while and it was always have my own lab it was always to be a pi and to, to, to have that because like you said it's you, you get to just explore and you you can find something and say well that's interesting and then you can go away and do it or you know you can write money to go away and do it and it's, so it's it's quite a difficult thing to separate from because it, it's i think science is very much a you can do it nine to five. I know people who do it nine to five, but it is quite difficult to do that. You do need to kind of, because I guess with pay to think, right? So, you know, you think all the time. My best ideas come to me when I'm trying to go to sleep, which is fantastic. But yeah, it's it's very difficult to do. I'm not, I don't want to leave it, but I, yeah. I think my, for me, it's a, it's great getting paid for it, but I, I think I feel like I should be paid more or that yeah. I should have more free time. And I think that's probably, that's yeah. where it gets me, I think. Yeah, the free time issue uh, for sure uh, <laughs> gets to me sometimes. It's uh, yeah, it is, yeah, it depends on <laughs> yeah on what's going on. I guess it's. Uh, I think I'm someone that uh, you know when I'm working on my own project that I'm into it, I will always work uh, more than necessary. Mm. Uh, but the, the times that really gets to me is when you're directed. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, right. With uh, you. And it's like, well, now now I have to do this on top of what I would normally <laughs> do, and uh, yeah, that uh, then then it gets a bit much. So, but that that yeah, that doesn't happen all too all too often i've been lucky in that sense i guess but yeah i don't know i just uh i think yeah it's a it's just a unique career and the flexibility it gives uh i mean you get opportunities to go to conferences and and this kind of thing it's uh it's stressful for sure uh yeah yeah i, I mean it's just uh yeah i've also guess been lucky to have such nice colleagues mm. but uh i mean there's just it's always such support uh such good conversation you know scientific and non-scientific there's always a feeling of kind of camaraderie. Uh. <laughs> I mean, that that's that's a, a really important point because I think that's the thing that makes or breaks academia a lot of the time because you, yeah. all the things that are wrong with it, there's not that's not going to change anytime soon. But the environment yeah. that you're in makes a huge difference. And if you're in an environment where you like people, well, not really like people, where you get along with people and everyone are happy to help out and chat and be social, that makes a, that's a huge difference. 
Yeah, for absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I think it is one of the reasons I was so, uh, you know, moving to Glasgow worked out so so mm. well for me is because uh, the institute in Glasgow really did this well. I mean, I was lucky to be with such a great uh, bunch of PhD students and postdocs at the time I was there. But we had this big shared office of uh, PhDs from different labs. We had our tea breaks together. We were all interested in each other's science. Um, and, and, you know, went for drinks at the pub, of course, <laughs> together. I mean, you can't be in the UK and not do that yeah, almost every night. But, uh, yeah, in Vancouver, I think the, the Institute just wasn't built in the same way. So it just came across as very isolated. Uh, so you really had to make the effort to try and uh, find people to, to discuss things and, and get feedback or just, yeah, go for a drink and have a chat. <laughs> Uh, at least when I was there, I don't know if it's uh, changed since, but uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I just uh, it's yeah. I, I I like what I do. <laughs> so so are you planning to stay then? Are you, is the plan to open your own lab? That is the plan down the line. I mean, we'll see. I've got a long way to go, of course. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see. Uh, yeah, see what obstacles come and uh, if I can get over them. You know, I will be at the stage, uh, I guess, probably sooner than I think, where I'll have to start applying for my own money, yeah. uh, even just as a senior uh, postdoc. Yeah, so so we'll see. It's it, I find it difficult. That's one of the things I find difficult, actually, is, uh, you know, publishing, right? Is uh, It's always kind of, at the end of the day, up to your supervisor yeah. to, to publish. And, you know, if I can't get uh, some of my publications out, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, then that uh, really starts to... Yeah. <laughs> you know, impact uh, how I can do moving forward. I think I'll be okay. I mean, I've got papers uh, in the pipeline. Yeah, but, and you've uh... got a PI who's happy to preprint, so you can skip that yeah. sort of six-month wait. Because certainly, at least in the EU, most of the funding bodies now, are they count preprints as outputs. So it's all you need, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it is, yeah, yeah. I, I keep hearing that it's changing. You don't necessarily need your CNS paper nope. to to move forward in your career but yeah we'll see when the time comes if, if that's true or not <laughs> i think they still help but there's definitely there's a nice shift going on which is good to see because that's what the show's all about but i think that that was it that's all my questions i think so unless there's anything you want to add we'll fade out to music john can fade out to music yeah if we had whiskeys i would cheers you and just uh <laughs> say have a nice night but... mine's, mine's gone it's empty. okay and that is the show if you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button for more and leave us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening on. You can reach out to us on Twitter at MotionPod or online at preprintsinmotion.com. Didn't enjoy that? Well, we're all scientists here, so send us your review and let us know what works or what you'd like to hear more of, or less of. But until next time, have a good week. Where do I find out about the different bioarchive licenses? This CC, BY, CDXY nonsense is driving me nuts. ASAP Bio have a resource for that. Ugh, that's your answer to everything. That's because they have everything you need to know about preprints. Sure, they probably have the basics, like info on the preprint service, but what else is there? There's so much more. Looking to post a preprint, but not sure what different journal policies are? They have a collection to help you out with that. There are meetings around preprints and associated services. If you want to know how preprint adoption has changed over time, there's even a page on that. And COVID? They have a big section on preprints and the pandemic, plus some really cool infographics for communicating preprints. And university policies? Surely they don't have that. They collect uni policies where possible. Okay, okay, they do sound pretty impressive, but is it not a bit of an echo chamber? It can be, but ASAP Bio also engage with people who don't love preprints. 
and have concerns. So we had an excellent discussion on this very topic a couple of months ago. Oh, is there anything ASAP Bio don't do? Honestly, no, they're so nice over there. They were so quick to jump in and support this show. It's your one-stop shop for info on preprints and open science initiatives. So head over to asapbio.org to learn more and subscribe to their newsletter for the latest in preprint news. If you want a deeper dive into the world of preprints, then look out for the next recruitment of ASAP Bio Fellows. Mm-hmm.